I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 156. Today on the show, we are joined by Steve Scott of the Whitetail Institute of North America, and we're diving into all things food plots. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And as I just mentioned, joining me here shortly to discuss a wide variety of food plotting topics is Steve Scott of the Whitetail Institute of North America. And over the next hour or so, we are going to cover it all. Food plotting advice for beginners, all the way to more advanced food plotting tactics and concepts for those that are more experienced. So, whether you already plant acres and acres of tasty whitetail food every year or have just been mulling around the possibility of doing it, this episode is for you. Now, on today's episode, my trusty co-host Dan is not along with us, so I want to take a quick second during this intro period to do a couple different things. So first off, at the end of last week's podcast, I announced a little Instagram giveaway deal. So for those of you who stuck around to the end, you got to take advantage of that. And uh, to enter this giveaway, all you had to do was follow Wired Hunt on Instagram. And that username is simply the at sign and then Wired to Hunt, all one word. And once you followed Wired Hunt on Instagram, you just had to send me a direct message saying you want to enter. And that's, that's it. That's all you guys had to do. And since then, I've gotten a ton of messages. So... I'm now able to announce the five winners. So here they are, and I'm going to just read the Instagram usernames here. These are the five people that are going to win a Wired to Hunt hat. We've got Tanner underscore Nolan three. We've got G Goman, that's G-G-O-E-M-A-N. We have C Wake 20. We have D-D is Rude. And we have t.bottomly. Uh, I don't know how you guys come up with your usernames, but uh, <laughs> there they are. I will uh, send each of the winners a message on Instagram with further details. So thanks to everyone who entered to win. And for those who didn't, well, you should still be following Wired on Instagram. So, so go do that. On to the next order of business. I want to mention again that I'll be speaking at the 2017 
Quality Deer Management Association National Convention this July down in New Orleans. And if you've been on the fence about going or not, you should just go. It's going to be an incredible event. There's a bunch of great speakers, a lot of fun events, and uh, I've been to the summer or sorry to the convention in past years. It's been terrific. Highly recommend it. So I'm going to be speaking on Friday, July 1st, and as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that's going to be a live broadcast or live recording of a podcast episode. So. Head on down to New Orleans, join me for that podcast. You can ask some questions. It's going to be a lot of fun. I would love to see you guys down there. So with all that out of the way, I think now we can get this show on the road. So let's pause briefly for our Sitka story of the week, and then we'll dive into a great discussion on food plots. So from here, producer Spencer Newharth will take it away. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Bryce Lamley, a Sitka whitetail ambassador who tells us about an improbable hunt with his longbow at ground level in a Nebraska cornfield. Well, it was October of 2007, and my first year wearing Sitka gear, and I was having a hard time finding the deer. And the place I, ne- I usually go then is into the cornfield, and it's an irrigated cornfield, so it's really it's a jungle in there, but there's a lane to the center pivot, and I climbed the center pivot, and about sunset, Really nice buck walked out along the along the pivot lane, and there's some uh, grassy area in there. I figured I didn't have anything to lose, so I went into the corn and tiptoed down the corn rows to the center pivot track that I thought would bring me out within range of the buck. It was pretty crunchy in there, and I decided that I had nothing to lose. I was positive by now the deer had heard, heard me, and so I began pulling on ears of corn and, and making noise on purpose, including a little bit of grunting, hoping that the deer would think it was just another deer. As I reached the second pivot track, I began going back to, uh, toward the lane where I thought the deer might be out in the, in the open, and it turned out the deer was right in, in the pivot track almost with me. And I got within five yards, and all of a sudden he was there, and I realized that, that uh, I was not going to probably get a shot. We had kind of a face-off and the buck bounded back out into the into the open but he wasn't completely spooked and i was able to tiptoe a few rows closer to the edge and sure enough he was standing there and as it turned out about 12 yards away and i was able to get an arrow through the between the corn stalks and with my longbow and i whacked him pretty good and he ran across the opening into the corn on the other side where i could visually track his progress until i heard a big thud and kind of an improbable hunt and one of my most exciting ones. Well, certainly wasn't one of my biggest deer, but absolutely one of the most exciting encounters I've had. On Bryce's hunt, which took place in eastern Nebraska, he was wearing Sitka's original mountain pants and vest. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. All right, with me now on the line is Steve Scott. Welcome to the show, Steve. Mark, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to chat. I've always enjoyed our conversations at ATA and different things in the past, so uh, glad we can do this here today. And how are you doing? I'm blessed. Uh, had a great weekend. Hope you did. And uh, uh, family's good, business is good, and uh, fixing to go on vacation here in about a week, so everything's great. Wow, yeah. Where, where are you headed? Well, uh, actually headed out to the northwestern United States. Uh, my son lives out there, but my wife and I have fallen in love with that part of the world uh, over the last few years. And 
love the mountains and the cooler weather and starting yeah. to heat up down here in Alabama this time of year. So we enjoy getting out of it and going and enjoying some cooler weather. So going to take a week or two and just uh, no plans other than seeing my son and his wife, just, just relaxing. Wow, that'll be really yep. nice. That yep. uh, it's beautiful out there. It sure is. I I spend a lot of time not quite in the Northwest, but over Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, and gosh, that mountain air—it's crisp, cool, and pretty darn nice. So I'm. Jealous. I would encourage everybody if they can figure out a way to do it, put it on their bucket list. Because uh, I mean, I knew it was pretty out there, but until I drove into it the first time, it was just you know, it's, it's hard to explain how beautiful it is and how nice it is. So. If we if we don't talk about food plots, we can talk about the travel channel. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, but it is it's awesome. Looking forward to it. That's great. Well, uh, yep. I'm I'm jealous. I'll I'll be heading back out uh, mid July. I'll be heading back to the mountains. So um, I'll be right behind you. Okay, you going fishing? Yeah, gonna do a lot of fishing and uh, some hiking and kayaking and all that. And then uh, have got a couple hunts planned out there. For late August, early September too. So uh, it should okay. be a, should be quite the trip, hopefully. Oh yeah, sound like you're going to have a big time. So, uh, yeah. and I know when we we originally discussed having this conversation, we didn't talk about we we're going to talk about our travel plans. But uh, but uh, it's uh, uh, it's always good to visit with you on uh, food plots and uh, what's going on in our lives as well. So yeah, look, I look forward to my trip. I'm going to look forward to hearing how your trip goes. So yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll keep you posted. And um, I guess. We should stay on track, I suppose. And, yeah. you know, food plots, of course, are something that a lot of our listeners utilize and focus on in their management and hunting plans. But I think today we sometimes just, or at least hunters maybe that are getting into it today, think that food plots have just been always a part of the deer hunting world. It's They're such a part of the deer hunting world today. I don't know if anyone remembers what it was like before that, but... Where I kind of want to kick things off, Steve, is that time before food plots because your company, Whitetail Institute, and your family has been largely credited with really launching the whole food plot industry and this this trend now that dominates so much of the hunting world here in North America. So I was hoping, Steve, you could tell us that story. You know, how did this whole thing begin? Well, and I appreciate that, and and we do take, we do uh, take credit for it, and we are uh, recognized as, as the people that started the food plot craze and. It was back in 1988 when we actually uh, launched the Whitetail Institute. Uh, going back from there a little bit, uh, we, we've been down here in the south, we've been playing green fields, going, calling it more of a green field, whether it be like wheat, rye, and oats, and uh, just to attract deer in the fall and winter. We've been doing that since I can remember, uh, which I started hunting back in the, uh, I guess it would have been the early 70s. We've always done that. And over the years, I, I give uh, my dad credit, Ray Scott, he uh uh, he was involved in that, and he was the one paying for the seed and the fertilizer and lime and all, and, uh, and I was doing a lot of the work. But one year, uh, the guy that he bought a bunch of seed from threw a bag of seed on the truck and said, hey, Rachel, I want you to try this. And it was just a clover product. And uh, and he said, well, what do I need to do? He said, just you know, plant it out there with your other stuff, You know, maybe put it by itself, and told him a little bit how to plant it, et cetera, et cetera. So my dad kind of set up a buffet, if you will, you know, wheat here, rye there, oats there, clover there, wheat, rye, oats, what have you, and kind of just set it up like a, you know, cafeteria style. And the first time he hunted it, he watched deer walk out of the woods and walk through two or three different things to get to this clover that he planted. And he was thinking, you know, didn't think a whole lot about it, but it was interesting. But uh, the next time he went, the same thing happened, and the light came on. He's like, what's going on here? And so he put other people in there, and they saw the same thing going on. And he wanted to know why. Giving him credit, his uh, inquisitiveness, 
uh, and he tracked it down to the clover that he had planted. It was actually developed by a gentleman named Dr. Wiley Johnson at Auburn University. And he called him up and asked him about it, and he said, yeah. He said, this is more preferable than cereal grains. He said, one other thing, that it's much more nutritious. And so one thing led to another, and and, uh, and my dad ended up hiring Dr. Wiley Johnson. He was our first agronomist plant breeder, and uh, and asked him if he could develop a clover specifically for deer. He said, uh, yeah. And, uh, and that's kind of where it started, just uh, you know, an idea from him. Dr. Wiley Johnson, he worked on our first variety uh, uh, was introduced many, many, many years ago, and the uh, first variety of clover ever de- developed specifically for deer. And since then, we've introduced new varieties ongoing, and we continue to work on new varieties to make it, you know, what more heat heat resistant, drought tolerant, cold tolerant, etc. Uh, nutrition and seedling bigger, you know, a lot of things that we select for. But that's kind of where it started, and and uh, given, you know, my dad credit, Ray Scott credit, uh, he he believed that if uh, uh, if he liked it and saw the benefit of it, which included starting to see a better quality deer over time, uh, that other people would appreciate it too. And he spent the money on educating the public through advertising, marketing, and providing a quality product. And that's what right at 30 years ago now, and uh, and here we are today. It's something like, as you say, it's kind of interesting uh, uh, that it is. I guess there's a lot of folks that you know don't know the history of food plots because I mean, 30 year old folks. I mean, they weren't. They, you know, they had no idea what was going on at the time. So, uh, it's uh, it's come a long ways. It's uh, it's been fun. Uh, learned a lot, uh, and it, but it's been it's been rewarding too to uh, uh, to see where people have gone from just you know planting a you know a a, a, a patch of wheat to managing their property, including part of the food plots being part of that, and uh, and the enjoyment that people get out of it from just as opposed to just spending a. Uh, you know, a few weekends a year hunting. Now they're starting to spend, you know, a great deal more time on their property. Uh, you know, you know, taking care of their food plots, planting food plots, planting food plots. You know, managing their timber, the rest of the property, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it's uh, it's been re- rewarding. And the other biggest thing would be is the quality of deer. How has changed since 30 years ago? Uh, when we started uh, providing products and information. A guy today is five times more likely to kill a deer that qualifies for the record books than he was before we started. Wow. Uh, yeah, and that's, those those are staggering numbers. And um, and we don't take all of that credit, but we're going to take our share of it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. That's pretty incredible. The, the, it's It's been an amazing evolution as an industry and as just a, a culture, a, a kind of subculture within the deer hunting world. I'm curious what about your own evolution as a food plot user? Just you personally, how is that? How has that transitioned over time, and and why do you personally use for food plots? Uh, you know, I'm in a I'm in a uh, very very uh, unique situation in that I get to hunt over ground where we do a lot of our testing uh, locally, local testing. We test everywhere from Alabama, I mean, Tennessee, Iowa, into Minnesota, New York, uh, and all over the country, but. Like for example, when we do cafeteria tests to, to see which 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 uh, particular variety of seed a deer may like, and I'm getting to hunt over that. Uh, but not only am I getting to watch some interesting things where you know where you, if you watch you know say ten deer walk into a food plot, and six or eight of them walk through you know two, three, four, five, six things to get to one particular forage, you know it's kind of it's interesting to see. But the other thing that I've gotten uh, the benefit of is uh, not only seeing more deer. 
which, you know, ultimately that's what I want to do. But I'm also seeing a lot better quality deer than what we used to, you know, down here in Alabama, like a lot of places where if it had horns, we killed it back in the day. Um, it didn't matter how big those horns are or were. Uh, whereas now we've moved up to where we, uh, you know, we're looking for something that's, that's mountable generally. Uh, unless, you know, we've got a new hunter or uh, somebody that's just not had a lot of success. We'll ring light them on pretty much anything they want. If they see something they like and it's legal, you know, have at it. Yeah, I um speaking of some of the of the uh, of, of using food plots, something that you and me had talked about a couple of years ago. Um, I'd actually written an article for my website um, about the intangible benefits of food plots, and and you had seen that and liked it, and we ended up republishing that within Whitetail News. Um, and we had some conversations around just the different benefits of food plots that, that aren't just how they improve your hunting or how they improve your herd health, but some of the other things that we as just people get from understanding food plots and, and giving back and planning food plots. Can you can you talk a little bit about that for you? Do you feel any of those things in your own you know world and, and how you utilize food plots? Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, my mind's running in a hundred different directions, but and I'm not sure this is answering the question specifically that you asked, but you know one of the neat things about the food plots is is yes, we're doing it um uh with an ulterior motive. We want more deer and we want better quality deer. I mean that's why people do it, but at the end of the day, the deer are benefiting uh all the deer are benefiting, but it doesn't stop there um you know the turkey hunting uh is better the turkeys benefit from it you know everything from you know we don't have bears down here but across the country and you've got bears you've got uh uh rabbits uh all the all the, way, the list goes on and on, all the way down to songbirds all the animals benefit and uh it takes time it takes money it takes effort to get them in get food plots in but um uh, uh you know the list of benefits goes on and on and all the animals that are on the property benefit but not only that something that we probably don't talk enough about is is people that are i'm not talking about hunters here i'm talking about people that are kind of on the fence you know they don't hunt but they're not against it they're not anti and even the antis uh i challenge any of them to uh uh to convince me or show me where they're putting or giving more to wildlife in the land than uh food plotters do uh because everything on the property benefits all the way down to predators so I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it's uh, but the benefit you know the benefits are, are are long, and we could we could talk about that for the next hour or two easily. Yeah, yeah, far, far ranging, and yes, uh, that's the truth. And and one of the things is the the little things, even for me too. It's like, and I'm sure you've experienced this. Like you, you work on a food plot, and you put in all that time, and you get dirt in your hands, and and long hours out there in the field. That first hunt every year for me, the first hunt over a food plot, when I can watch that and a deer walks out into it and starts feeding, that is just the coolest feeling. Um, knowing that you know all the work you put into all, all the work you put into it is paying off. These deer are enjoying it; they're utilizing it and getting to it. Just I don't know. That is a special moment every year for me. It is. And, you made uh, that happen. Yeah. You made that happen, and I've used that same similar scenario in some conversations with people whether they've been doing it for a while, they're talking about getting into it. And I've told them, I said, when they buy some stuff, kind of just walking them through the process, make sure they get planted right. And I said, hey, listen, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be out there sweating. You're going to have dirt all over you and on your fingernails. You're going to have fertilizer and lime on you and seed, and your knuckles are going to be bleeding. And you're going to be probably calling me some pretty bad names. <laughs> I said, but here's what's going to happen. 
I said, once you get it all done and you get through calling me bad names and, and uh, kicking things, you're going to be sitting there, whatever, October or November, and the wind's going to be in your face. It's going to be pretty chilly, and you're going to have six or eight deer that are standing in that field, and one of them may be a you know, pretty nice buck or a big old quality buck. Your knees are going to be jumping around and your breath short. You're going to forget all the work that went into it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, very similar to what you're talking about. And uh, and that's that's how it goes a lot because I've had a lot of guys laugh when I say that. I said, you know, you, you, were you there when I was calling you those names? <laughs> I said, no, but I know what's going to happen because I've called people names too when I'm doing that work. Mm-hmm. But it does. It takes some work and some time and some effort, but the rewards are there. Yeah, yeah, that's the truth. It's been neat. Um, I've been fortunate to be able to hunt a lot of different scenarios. You know, I've hunted public land where you're just kind of hunting the situation you've got. I've hunted private land where, you know, I can't manipulate habitat at all, but, you know, I have it most to myself. Then I've hunted other properties where I can do some work and I can plant food plots and I can manage to a degree and do things like this. And each of these different types of ways of hunting all have some really cool aspects to them. And, you know, every different person hunter out there has different circumstances that dictate which of those they can participate in. But um, I'll tell you what, if you have the ability to try food plotting and add that to your repertoire, um, it's it's a really great addition to your food plotting or to your deer hunting year. It's a great way to continue things throughout the year and see so many different benefits you know, actually out there in the field. And I'm, I'm sure we can talk about all those, um, but. Uh, yeah, no doubt. It's something that, and then they're there. And uh, uh, and I'm like you, I've done, I've hunted a lot of different ways. I won't go through the whole whole list, but, uh, you know, and it's something with food plots. A lot of people think, eh, you know, I don't want to hunt right on the food plot. Well, and we tell them a lot of times it's best not to hunt right on the food plot. You know, try to get between the food plot and the bedding area to catch the deer on the way. Um, and, you know, and adjust, you know, wherever the deer are, just adjust your hunting techniques to where the deer are. If the rut's on and the does are getting to the food plot in daylight hours, you probably want to be pretty close by. Uh, if it's more into a, uh, you know, where they're just feeding, they're not chasing the does yet. Uh, and the pressure's on a little bit, you might want to move a little bit back in the woods closer to the bedding area. Obviously, you know, maintain where you don't disturb that bedding area. But you know, a lot of times the, the more mature bucks tend to show up on the food plots you know, after legal shooting light. Uh, if you move back a little closer to where the where they're bedding, you may catch them when it's legal. Yeah, and that's a great point. I'm sure and, you... Well, let me, and, and, and not, excuse me for interrupting, something that I, I didn't mention earlier, and, mm-hmm. and, you, and I wrote myself a note here I wanted to mention uh, with a food plot. One of the great benefits, it is a fantastic place to set up a, you know, a, a elevated box blind or a ground blind or whatever and have a place that's enough room with a couple chairs in there where you can take a kid, uh, or, a, or an adult even, you know, somebody that hadn't hunted much. Um, and, and the benefits there, one is that they can sit in there, they can be a little bit more warm, obviously, than hanging on a tree limb or a stump. Uh, plus, the, the chances of seeing some uh, activity, some wildlife, goes up substantially at a food plot versus, you know, hunting on a trail in the woods, which, you know, can lead to some, you know, you might kill a better deer back in there at some point in time because it's in thicker cover. But uh, as far as kids go, new hunters go, they want action. You know, they can take their, uh, you know, whatever, their Game Boy or their book or their homework, and they can just sit there and, and, and pass a little bit of the time doing whatever. And when the wildlife starts showing up, that's when you get their attention, and it's a great place where they can move around without scaring everything off. So it, 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 it provides that benefit as well. Yeah, that's a great point. A few years ago, um, 
I took my dad hunting with me, and my dad has some pretty serious eyesight challenges. So, you know, growing up, we used to hunt up our, we had a family northern Michigan property, but it was mostly swamp and thick woods and stuff, and it was really hard for him to see deer. And he hadn't killed a deer in a long time because of that. And um, I started hunting a property in southern Michigan where I started planting food plots and everything. And a couple of years ago, I had him down in a situation just like that. We sat in a box blind, and we overlooked one of the food plots I'd planted. And, you know, he could see really well out in that wide open. And he was able to kill a buck, the first deer that we'd ever actually killed sitting together in my entire life. I'd hunted him my whole life, but this is the first time he'd been able to kill something together. And, uh, man, it was it was one of the absolute best moments of my of my life as a hunter getting to share that with him and uh it wouldn't have been possible if we weren't in a situation like that so i think that's a it's a perfect example of what you're talking about well it is and it doesn't get much better than that yeah it was pretty special so yep. so uh, let's let's talk about the how to's of some of these things because if you're already using food plots you know they're really beneficial if you've been on the fence i think we've talked about a few things um about why it might be worth trying but now let's say we're in the game this time of year right now i kind of want to start with with now this podcast is going to be going out to the world sometime in early june um so i'm kind of curious steve for people this time of year summer what are some of the things we should be thinking about as a food plotter? Um, as a food plotter, you know, the, uh, anything, any existing food plots that people have going, they they want to be they want to be paying attention to them from a maintenance standpoint. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, uh, perennials, for example, uh, seeds, for example, our imperial white-tailed clover is a perennial that can last several years without having to replant it. Uh, very nutritious. But uh, but they need to control. When I say they, the uh, food plotter needs to control the weeds and grasses in it. Uh, mowing periodically is a good way to do that. You know, you just don't want to mow when it's hot and dry. Uh, but mowing's a good way to control weeds and grasses. But we've also got herbicides that are available. We've got a grass-specific herbicide called Arrest Max uh, that they can spray on it. We've got a product called Slay that is our broadleaf weed uh, herbicide. But maintenance on on the existing food plots. But uh, as far as getting ready for fall, which will be here before we know it, uh, any new food plots they've got, they're planning on planting. Now is the perfect time uh, to do a soil test. Uh, and if anybody's done uh, uh, food plots long, they probably have gone to started the food plot. I mean, started the soil test. And then, and I've said many, many times, this is the most valuable thing you can do to ensure success from your food plot efforts. And soil test, easy to do, simple to do, uh, inexpensive, but it, what it does is they take the soil, they, they, can, get our, they can get our soil test up from whitetailinstitute.com or by calling us, or they can go to their you know, uh, a county agent, what have you. A lot of places they can get a soil test done, but send it off to a laboratory where they're going to professionally test it. They'll send the results back and tell them exactly how much lime they're going to need to add, how much and what type of fertilizer you're going to need to add. And by doing the soil test now, uh, it just puts them in a position to where they can be ready to go when it's time to plant, which is going to, depending on where they are in the country, you know, the farther northern part of the country, they're going to be planting in, in late June and even early July. Uh, but then as you come further south, you know, it starts to get on into later in July and August and down in the deep south, uh, September, and even as late as early October. So, uh, uh, but doing the soil test now is, is going to be critical. Uh, in my opinion, to uh, to ensure that they're going to be su- successful with their fall efforts. So let's talk, let's talk about the soil test a little bit because, like you mentioned, you've said this and, and basically everybody says this. It's very important mm-hmm. to do soil test. 
I still know lots and lots and lots of people out there who don't do it or do it once and then don't do it again for 10 days or 10 years. Um, yeah. What what happens? Because it's, it's easy to say you won't be successful, but what specifically can happen if you just plant your food plot without doing a soil test? What are the what are the risks here that we're talking about? Um, well, I'm kind of giving you a, 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 the, the abbreviated answer, and I'll get into a little bit more detailed answer. Abbreviated answer, a soil test can be the difference between the best food plot you can imagine and total failure. It can be that big a difference. But what it does is it, it kind of get, well, we'll get into the chemistry here, but different plants require different nutrients to flourish, to, to, to grow as well as they can, to be as healthy as they can, to be as, as nutritious as they can, and produce as much tonnage as they can. And by doing a soil test, and if, and if you can, if you know what you're going to plant, specify what you're going to plant, they can give you a tailored recipe to add the nutrients to that soil so that when you put that seed out and it germinates, the fertilizer slash nutrients that are in that soil are available to that plant to take up and give it a chance to, as I say, flourish. Um, it gets in, You get into lime, you're going to get into nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. Those things are the, uh, are, are the, are the big, big three, if you will, big four count the line. Okay. That makes sense. And then, you know, if, if you, I think there's two other things. One, or at least two things I've noticed, too, in addition to what you said there. Um, if you're not doing your soil test, you could waste money on fertilizer or lime because in some cases you might – there's two ways to go. You could use too little or you could use too much. You could spend a bunch of money buying triple 16 or something and turns out that you didn't need any of that nitrogen maybe, but you just spent a bunch of money on fertilizer that had all that. Um, or on the other side, you could decide not to put fertilizer on, but just spend a bunch of money on seed and lime and time on the disc and all that stuff. And then because you didn't have the right fertilizer, your food plot doesn't come in and you wasted all that money on the other thing. So it's, it it becomes an economical issue. I think too, it's a, a very small price to pay to save a lot of money in the long run, I think. So that's something to consider as well. Oh, 100% correct, and that's some of the biggest benefits is the is the money involved. I mean, you don't have to get into specific numbers, but if the pH is just, you know, a point or two low uh, and somebody spends whatever, let's say $100 on fertilizer, uh, depending on what the plants are growing, but those when those plants grow, that $100 that they spend may be only $50 of that fertilizer is, is, is available to the plants because of the chemistry, the way chemistry is messed up. So, yeah, the plants are going to suffer, but you've also wasted money. Uh, and one of the examples that I use on high important soil testing is is something that uh, uh, the agriculture industry is doing. When I say agriculture, I'm talking about, you know, the guys that are growing the beans and the, and the corn and feeding the world, if you will. You know, they take a 100-acre field up there, and these guys are doing it for economics. I mean, you know, you know everything, the dollar they put in is a dollar they're not going to make. So um, they're doing it for economic purposes. And they've got into what they call grid testing now, where they'll take a 100-acre field, and they may do 100 different soil tests. Soil, soil test. And, uh, and it works with GPS. And, and, to, and to kind of get to the point here is it puts exactly what fertilizer is required for the plant they're going to be growing on each acre of ground in that 100 acres. Wow. And it's, 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 it's pretty amazing. But, uh, again, not talking about grid testing here with soil test, but it just goes to show you how important it is to do the soil test and again, I get back to how simple it is and, 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 and how inexpensive it is. The agriculture side of it is doing it for production. They want more production, which is in turn going to make them more money. 
multiplying that food plots, you're going to have more production. You're going to have more deer, better quality deer, and better quality food plots. Yeah. So speaking of fertilizer and lime, something I've been seeing show up more often have been some companies that are um, selling essentially liquid fertilizer or lime or food plot boosters or different things that you can spray on your food plot that either replace lime and fertilizer or supplement it, different things like that. What have you What have you seen, heard, um, understand about those? Do those actually work? Should we be considering using something like that to supplement our usual fertilizer or lime or, or replace it? Oh, that covers a whole lot of ground. Oh, uh, <laughs> and 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 I'll, I'm going to be careful here in the way I word this. Typically, what I tell I'm going to try to be as politically correct here, but as I answer your question. Uh, my former agronomist, Wiley Johnson, and the one that followed him, uh, Wayne Hanna, uh, they both said that you know they 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 would rather somebody see somebody use regular agricultural limestone, which is what farmers use, or you know if they if they have you know access problems, they can use pelleted lime. Pelleted lime can you buy in bags? It's easier to spread. It's much more expensive than regular agricultural lime. Um, so. They they would rather see people follow regular or traditional, if you will, agricultural practices, which is your uh, your uh, 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 for example triple thirteen fertilizer, triple seventeen fertilizer, or whatever the soil test calls for with regular agricultural lime. I don't want to get too much into the uh, some of the stuff that's coming and going uh, uh, because there's a whole bunch. I'm like you, I've seen a whole lot of it, uh, but just don't feel comfortable commenting on it. Uh, fair enough for may, what may be obvious reasons fair enough sure so so then let, let's take a step back then to something you said a couple minutes ago when we were talking about maintenance um, mowing and then dealing with weeds with chemical applications um, back to the mowing piece can you talk about the, the timing of that when's the right time to mow how do you know, like, for instance, for instance, I'm in a situation where I'm maintaining a clover plot, and one of the things I always am trying to remind myself of is, when's the right time to mow? I always have to go back and read articles online to figure out, am I mowing when it's starting to flower? Am I mowing when it's so tall? Or So when's the right time to mow something like that, like a clover plot? And then how right. many times a summer or a year should I do that? That's a fair question. It's going to depend on how, how you know, your, your growing season, uh, temperatures and moisture is going to dictate how many times you might have to do it. But typically, I think a good rule would be around probably going to be two or three times on a, on an average year. Uh, when uh, that's one of the unique things about the imperial white oak clover, it does not have to reseed to continue to grow. It actually grows from the root, so we don't have to let it flower and turn into seed to get more growth out of it. We can mow it, pure, you know, any time. Uh, what we the, a good rule of thumb would be too in, in that ten to twelve inch range. When it gets up to say that 10 to 12 inch range, whether it be, you know, just clover and/or weeds and grasses that may be mixed in with it, mow it down. Raise the mower deck if you can, and mow it down to about you know seven eight inches tall. Just kind of clipping the tops off. What that does, it gives a gives the more plants an opportunity to grow up within it, thicken it up even more. But another thing that it does is it, it prevents the weeds and grasses that are in it, or I should say, helps prevent the weeds and grasses that may be in it from going to seed, which you do not want to let happen. Yeah. So so apply. can we apply that same question then to the spring? Um, if I'm using some kind of herbicide, what's the timing on that? How often do you think on average somebody should be doing that? 
Uh, it's going to depend on what they're spraying at the time of year. The best time to, to, to spray these perennial plots to control weeds and grasses is going to be early in the spring when things first start to green up because as the grass or the weeds appear and they're in their more immature state, it's much easier to control those with herbicides than it is a mature plant. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that people, as they've, if they've let things go to more, they can't, that doesn't mean they can't uh, control the weeds and grasses. It's just going to probably t- probably take a little bit longer and a little bit heavier application, and it might take more than one application. Okay, cool. But it would be as a spring and summer activity as far as controlling weeds and grasses in a perennial food plot as a spring and summer uh, uh, project. Okay. Now, y- you mentioned here maintaining perennial food plots, and um, most people, I think, understand the difference between perennials and annuals, at least if you're already in the food plotting world and if you're already participating, that's something most people understand. Um, but can you talk to us a little bit about the whys behind why you might want to choose a perennial versus an annual and maybe why you might want to have both? You know, how does that fit into a food plot strategy? Um, yeah, again, it's, uh, let's start with annuals. Annuals are something that are designed to last a year or less. Generally, you know, for example, fall, winter annuals, typically something you're going to plant in late summer, early fall, and it's designed to attract and nourish deer during the fall and winter months. All right, uh, now, and it's going to pretty much play out at that time. Now, spring, summer annual, like our power plant product, is something people will plant in the late spring, early summer produces a lot of forage, a lot of tonnage, a lot of protein for the deer when they're growing their antlers. Plus, you know, the fawns are being born, the mother, you know, the does are producing milk. Um, it, it, it helps with those, all those activities. Um, so annuals are more targeted toward a specific time of year. A perennial uh, is something that can last, you know, up to five years from a single planting. Sometimes it goes even a little longer than that, but we say typically up to five years from a single planting. Uh, depending on how far north they are in the south, you know, you're looking at something that can produce food probably 10, 12 months a year up north, depending on how cold it gets. You're probably looking at nine to nine to 10, maybe 11 months a year, just depending on the year and how far north they are. But it's producing food the entire year. One of the benefits to perennials is not only is it great for hunting purposes, attracting deer in the fall and winter months, but, for example, going back to the imperial white oak clover, it's one of the first things to green up in the spring. And it's extremely high in protein. High protein is crucial for antler development, milk production, uh, body development, etc. So you're providing a something that not only can help you attract deer during the fall and winter, but also provide a very high level of nutrition in the spring and summer months when antlers are being grown, you know, and, and fawns are being born and the mother producing milk. Now, somebody that's, you know, that's got the availability to do it, an ideal thing is to have a combination of the two if they can. Uh, for example, you know, if a guy's got whatever four acres that he's planting, you know, say 50-50, do two acres in a perennial, and then two acres in annuals that you rotate to different things. That's generally a good recipe. And, again, there's some, you know, some 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 variables there. If they live a long, long ways away from their, their land, you know, they may want to lean a little bit more toward annual simply because of the maintenance situation. If they live close to their land, they might want to go a little heavier on the perennials. Yeah, it, it definitely is one of those situation-dependent things, um, which, which kind of brings me to my next question, which if I had to guess, I've got to, get, I've got to believe this is one of the most commonly asked questions you hear. It definitely is for me, and that is, you know, what should I plant? 
everyone wants to know, what should I plant? And if you look in the, in the food plotting world today, there are dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of different food plot seeds and varieties and blends and companies, and, and there's so many different things out there. Um, at a high level, if someone is just trying to answer that question for themselves, what should I plant? You know, whether it's something you guys are selling or if they're just looking at the whole world and, and just trying to decide, you know, how do I go about making this decision? What would you recommend as far as the questions they should be asking themselves or the steps they should go through to determine what to plant? Uh, you know, I, if somebody asked me that question, I would respond with a question, is, which is not what you want. Um, and this, this is, I'm going to make an assumption here, most, the vast majority of people plant deer to attract them during the fall and winter. Um, now, don't get me wrong, many people have advanced beyond just that and want to provide nutrition in the spring and summer, too. Um, so, if you know, if the gun's to my head and somebody says, nope, I don't want any questions, ask, just to answer my question, what do I need to plant? If, if they've got good heavy soil that holds moisture, I would plant imperial white chill clover on the good heavy soils that, that hold, uh, hold moisture. Uh, it's perennial, uh, all the benefits that we've discussed. But I would also, if, if possible, I would plant some annuals. Um, for example, our pure attraction product is a blend of our, our brassica plants and our oak plants. It's extremely attractive in the early season, and the brassicas are also very attractive in the late season. Um, so, it, again, you're right. It, it gets confusing when you, you can get overwhelming when you look at all the various products out there. But uh, for somebody that's just starting out, you know, Pure Attraction or our Whitetail Oats Plus, uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic way to get started. And we got a bunch of people that's been doing it for 20, you know, going on 30 years that are using those products as well. But they're easy to grow. They grow real fast, and the deer just pound them during the fall and winter months. Uh, winter Greens is another great choice. Uh, it's a brassica-based product. It's got our brassicas in it. Uh, but it tends to be best in the later season as the temperatures drop, but they'll also get used in the early season. It grows real fast, produces a lot of tonnage. Um, so, I mean, there's a, as you say, there's a lot of options, but if somebody's just getting started, the Whitetail Oats Plus or the Pure Attraction are great places to start if they want something more so designed more so specifically for the later season. The Winter Greens is a great choice. Yeah, I've had success with all of those. Um, but I kind of want to go back to what you first said. You said that you would you would actually, rather than giving a recommendation, you would ask them a question. I'm really curious about those questions. What are the questions <laughs> that these people should be asking? Because each one of us, right, we're in a unique situation. We all right. might have something that would work best for our strategy, for our property or our circumstances. What are those things that people should be thinking about to help them make the right decision for them? You know, what the question I'd be is, all right, what, you know, and again, I, a lot of times I, I ask a leading question. I kind of know, I, well, I predict what they're going to say with high uh, percentage of accuracy. You know, what do you want the food plot to do? And most people are going to say, well, you know, I want them to, you know, I want it for hunting season. I say that I followed up with, well, let me ask you this, you know, obviously, you know, where, where are you located and when, when are you, when are you hunting? Uh, are you hunting more early season? Are you hunting more late season? Are you hunting some of both? And let those questions kind of lead me toward, to where I would, uh, for example, if I ask a guy, I say, listen, you know, he wants to draw deer, and he's, you know, he has an opportunity to hunt a lot in, you know, whatever, say September and October, not as much later than that. I, you know, Pure Attraction or the Whitetail Oats Plus would be fantastic options. Grow fast, attract a lot of deer, uh, and they're fantastic in that earlier season. If a guy says, you know, I, you know I'm going to hunt a lot in November and December, a little bit late season, 
Uh, I would probably lean him toward either the pure attraction or the winter greens. And, you know, of course, we've got tall time tubers, which is our turnip product, and a new product we're just introducing called beets and greens. Uh, so there's a lot of choices for the late season as well. Uh, you know, and then, of course, if a guy says, well, you know, I want to have better quality deer to hunt, then I would lean more toward, you know, planting the, the like the power plant in the spring for antler development, uh, the doe lactation, et cetera, uh, and with a company to combine with a perennial such as Imperial White or Clover that can provide a lot of forage and a lot of nutrition during that early and the late season, uh, uh, excuse me, early spring and the late spring on into summer. Okay. Let's continue with some of these specific uh, circumstantial things. Let's say, as we're continuing to ask these questions, um, come to find out that food plotter John Doe says that his area he can plant a food plot is pretty wet. What would you recommend, whether it be as types of food plots or just things to consider when food plotting in a wet situation? Um, and again, now I'm going to ask another question. How wet is he talking about? I mean, is it does it stay mucky wet all the time? Because it, it, it can be too wet to grow successful food plot. It's kind of like it's kind of like people talk about sandy soil. Uh, there's some soils that are considered sandy, but they're they're good soils. Right? All the way down to beet sand, it doesn't grow much of anything. So that so I have to kind of qualify it with that. But in the more moist soils, the Imperial White Tail Clover, as I've mentioned many times, on heavy soil that holds moisture. Is phenomenal. Uh, that or our fusion product, which is our clover and chicory blend, uh, and annuals that grow well in that would be, uh, you know, our whitetail oats plus would be their best bet on that on that more damp soil. Okay, now let's look at the converse. What if you're in a really dry area? You're very arid. Um, you've got an area where you're not going to be sure you're going to get quite as much water and rain as you would ideally like. Anything different we should be thinking about there? Whether I mean, in addition to what to plant, I'm also curious. You know, if I'm in a wet or if I'm in a really dry area, should I be thinking differently about when I plant or how I maintain it or anything like that too? Not so much how you maintain it. I'd let the species of plant you're growing dictate that. Uh, but yeah, uh, if somebody's got heavier soils, you know, I mentioned the imperial white tail clover being ideal for that. Now you get up into the higher, drier type soils. I would probably recommend that somebody may up the percentage of annuals that they plant. Uh, stuff that's you know seasonally specific. Um, I would probably still recommend that they they get some perennials established, but maybe a lower percentage, simply because it's going to be affected so uh, so strongly by the drier conditions that they're dealing with. Um, but again, the uh, uh, the fall annuals, all the ones that I've mentioned, um, you know, the white tailoats plus and the winter greens. They all do real well on that well-drained soil, but they're designed to be planted in the late summer, early fall, depending on where somebody is. Uh, the power plant product produces a lot of tonnage, as I've said several times. It does well on those well-drained soils. We've got a couple perennials that are designed for well-drained soils. Uh, but again, we get into that how well-drained and how dry is it. Uh, our extreme product uh, is designed for the up, you know, the up, you know those upland soils, and our Alpha Rack Plus product is a much deeper rooted plant plant product as well. So um, I would probably on the heavier soils that hold moisture, I might lean a little more toward perennials, up that percentage from 50/50. Whereas if you get into the drier areas, I might up the percentage toward annuals from 50/50. Okay, that's helpful. Does that answer that answer that question. It does. I think so. Uh, okay, so I'm going to continue throwing these hypotheticals out there. 
Um, but this one is for someone who does not have big equipment. Maybe we don't have any way to disc. We don't have a tractor. We don't have an ATV. Um, can I plant a food plot without having big equipment like that? Can I plant something in a little spot in the woods or a little patch of open cover? Um, and if so, how, how can I do that? Yeah, it can be. And, uh, it, you know, the main thing is to get a good night's sleep and uh and rest up because it's going to require a good bit of work <laughs> but but uh and i say that slightly tongue-in-cheek but it's, it's a lot of truth to it obviously that's why they're using those big tractors and atvs to scratch the soil up but yeah we've got uh products that are designed specifically for that application uh for example if a guy's got a little small clearing back in the woods that uh you know it needs to be getting at least three or four hours of sunlight a day to make the chemistry of the plants work uh so we've got to have that and if 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 they don't have that, sometimes if they can cut some junk trees down, be careful with that. You know, be careful what you're cutting. But uh, if they can open up the canopy to let more sunlight in, that's the number one requirement is getting enough sunlight in that area to make the plants grow. But we've got two products, one called Secret Spot, one called Bowstand, that we've got a pack, a four-pound bag of it that's designed to plant 4,500 square feet. You know, a couple guys with a couple of good steel tooth rakes can get in there and spend, you know, spend a Saturday morning, and they can develop uh, a food plot. Again, as I said earlier, it's going to take some work um, um, because they're they're doing the work of the tractor, obviously on a much smaller scale. But, yeah, they can definitely get in there and do that with hand tools as little. Again, you know, it's gonna, it, it's, I've done it, and it's, uh, it, you know, they're going to be wore out that day. So, uh, but, again, it's going to be one of those things where they're, when, when fall rolls around, they've got some deer best, and they're going to forget the effort that went into it. Yeah, yeah. Early, early in my years, uh, food plotting. That was how I did it at first. I went, I was out there first with a rake, and then a couple of days later, I was able to, I was able to borrow a push rototiller. So I had a little bit of equipment. Um, but yeah, if you're able to scratch up a little bit of soil, you can get something out there. And uh, yes, indeed. And you, you just mentioned something that I should have mentioned earlier, and I apologize for jumping on top of you. But the main thing with those rakes, what we're trying to do is not only get that minimal sunlight in there to make the chemistry work. We have to have the soil exposed so that we can get seed-soil contact. So that's what we're looking for is a seed bed that's got as little to none uh, uh, weeds and grasses on it, having the soil exposed so that the plants have a chance to germinate uh, and, and flourish. Yeah. Here's another common question I get a lot, and that is, is it even worthwhile planting food plots if I'm in farm country and there's crop fields all around me, I mean, how do you how how do you answer that? Now we've been getting asked asked that question for going on 30 years now, and it's a great question because you know, especially like in the Midwest where there's beans and cornfields as far as you can see. Why in the world? It's like the whole world is a food plot out there. Why would they need to do it? Uh, which is a question I would ask if I was them, and I've got an answer. And the answer is this: uh, there are beans and corn everywhere out there. Uh, number one, what's going to differentiate your farm that you're hunting from all those other farms around you? Uh, you there's things that you can plant that uh, are going to differentiate, differentiate your 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 your, uh, your property from everybody else's. For example, the, the oats I mentioned, the clover I mentioned, or the uh, winter grains I mentioned. Uh, you're providing a, a, a different food source than is available everywhere else. So number one, you differentiate your your your, your land from everybody else's land. Um, uh, another thing that's happened too over the years since we started this is the combines 
have gotten so good, they're not leaving near the waste grain that they used to leave when they picked these fields. There's not near as much, and a lot of people, as soon as they get it picked, you know, they're they're turning it over. Uh, they're they're cutting everything in, and basically the the uh, the uh, the grocery store has closed. Um, so now you've really got a big advantage over any of your neighbors if if that is being done on their place. This is another place where food plots can separate themselves greatly. You know, even in um, uh, the bread basket, if you will, the Midwest. Um, is in this if, if deer let's just say deer roughly start growing their antlers in, in the early spring let's say March beans are high in protein you know which obviously can help deer grow better quality antlers and that's you know one of the reasons that uh that the deer in the Midwest are so big uh is because of the nutrition there but anyway um they gonna plant those beans in at the earliest sometime in May maybe the first of June. So by the time the beans are starting to grow to provide food for the deer, we're looking at at least June before the deer start feeding on it, and they started growing their antlers in March. So what are they going to be feeding on in April and May prior to those beans being available? The imperial white tail clover, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the first things that's going to green up in the spring. It's extremely high in nutrition, and it starts providing that that high-protein food source long before those beans are available. So what we've done is we started providing high nutrition earlier in the antler growing process, which is crucial to the end result in the hardened antler. Uh, there's research been done there in, in Michigan, um, whereas if, if antlers are stunted early on, there's not compensatory gains made later on. They're, you know, it's just going to be behind, it's going to be behind the entire time, even when they're hardened. Um, we we took it, uh, some antlers in velvet and had them assayed to find out um, uh, what was in them. What was not blood and water in the beginning stages was up to 80% protein. Wow. And a hardened antler is 45% protein. And all that, as amazing as it is to think about, still to this day it's amazing to me that the deer are going to grow these antlers in a matter of, you know, roughly six months. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, you're looking at, you know, at, at you know, 200-inch deer uh, is going to be growing all that in a matter of, you know, 150, 200 days. So what he's eating is crucial. Okay, we're going to take a quick pause here for our Whitetail Wisdom segment with our friends at Whitetail Properties. And producer Spencer Newharth will take it from here. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Brad Ferris, a land specialist out of central Mississippi. And Brad is going to be telling us about what factors make for quality property in the South. You know, I, and I spend a lot of time in the Midwest and, and the West, other parts of the country. One, it's just like most places. You want to, I like to find an area, and I'm going to call it a neighborhood, not really a neighborhood like where people live, but the area or the or area around a certain piece of property is one of the first things I like to dig into. Um because depending on what's going on in the area, whether it be roads, rivers, uh, a lot of small landowners, um, a, a busy property is just not going to be as high-quality recreational property as a quiet, secluded property. So the area and the location is, is, is very important to me when, when trying to find a, a piece of ground for a client, for, you know, with whitetail properties and finding 
finding what they want, I like to ask the questions. You know, river tracks are different than hill tracks. Um, in the south, it typically takes a little bit bigger piece of property to do what you want to do than like in the Midwest. Um, you know, a 200-acre track in the Midwest that's full of timber can be really, really good. 200 acres in the south can be okay, but you're not going to have a lot of management opportunities like you will in other parts of the country. Um, it's, it's one thing about the south that is different to tracks. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Brad currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Ferris. That's F-A-R-R-I-S. So, so this, that all makes a lot of sense. And like intellectually, I think we all, we all know in general that improving the nutrition in an area like this by adding more food sources of high quality, like a food plot, that should help improve the herd health in general. That should help improve antler growth. Um, but what I'm curious, and I have no idea if there, if this is something that has been quantified in any way. Um, but I'm curious, you know, it, what kind of realistic health benefits? Um, let me let me rephrase this. What is the scale of a food plot system we need to actually show quantifiable impacts like that? And then, like, what's what's a time frame and what's like a size? Is there any? Do you have any idea? I mean, is like, if I plant a, a half acre food plot, is that really going to make a difference? Or you know, I know it'll help me from a hunting perspective, but will a half acre help from a health perspective? Or is it more like I need two acres or five acres or ten acres? Um, and maybe this is an impossible question to answer, but I'm just curious if if you've had any perspective on that. Uh, to answer your question directly, it's not impossible to answer. I'm not sure I'll be able to answer because there's so many if, ands, and buts. It's what, uh, what other food do they have available to them, uh, natural forages, uh, agriculture, um, you know, how, uh, uh, what they, you know how, how many deer are feeding on it, how many deer are on the property. Uh, is there going to be enough tonnage produced by that half acre to feed, you know, a lot of deer or just a couple of deer? But, you know, it's, it's and how much of their diet consists of that food plot. Uh, but you know anything that they can do is going to help. Now, will they be able to visually see the difference if they go and plant a half acre on a 200 acre farm? You know, uh, you know. I, I, again, the quantified is not. I, I'm going to say probably not. Um, uh, but at the same time, if you've got a a buck that's you know that's it, when he's born as a fawn, if his mom's visiting that food plot. Uh, uh, before he's born and right after he's born, and he and that's kind of his home range. If he grows up with that better nutrition that's available to him, yes, it will improve the quality when he gets mature at maturity and all the way through. Uh, but you know, I want to I, I say that hesitantly, mainly because you know a, a half acre food plot, you know, is definitely going to help you from a hunting standpoint. How much nutrition can it provide, and how many deer are we talking about? Uh, I'm not trying to avoid the question by any means, but uh, and there's not a specific number uh, that you. This is this is what you got to do to make a difference because anything that you can do, whether it be a half acre, quarter acre, whatever, anything's going to help. It's the degree of help that you get. Um, and typically, what we tell folks is again drifting here a little bit, but um, uh, there there's some people that's you know talked about you know hey planting food plots and managing deer you can start really seeing results three four five years down the road well you know we 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 agree with that but we disagree from a standpoint you really don't have to wait that long to see the results the first year that they plant them what they should expect to see is more deer and increased buck activity 
Now, as the deer grow up in, from standpoint all the way from a phone, all the way to one and a half to two and a half and on up, if they've got better nutrition available to them, higher, higher protein available to them as they're growing up, they're going to be better quality at maturity. And again, sense. it's, uh, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to quantify how much difference a half acre is going to make, uh, cause it's going to, there's so many variables involved, Yeah, no, but I, it will help. And the more you can do the better. Yeah. That's one of those questions as the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing there's no way to answer this, but <laughs> well, worth... you know, it's a, it's a tougher one, but, uh, certainly tougher to quantify it, but it's. You know, it's something that, you know, we certainly, anybody that's got a, a half acre that they can scratch around and plant, I mean, it's, it's going to make their hunting experience better. And the nutrition that they're going to be providing is going to benefit the animals. Now, are they going to be growing Boone and Crockett's in a year? Nope. Uh, hopefully they'll attract one. Um, but over time, as deer grow up with better nutrition, they got a better chance. And for, for example, one of the uh, things that we talked about, when, when a deer is born, he's got the genetic blueprint that the Lord gave him. Uh, the Lord, when he, when this fall was uh, uh, born, it had the genetic potential to reach 170 inches. We're not going to take food plots and turn that deer into a 200-inch deer. The best he can be is 170. So what we try to do is let's just say that he's born in just a, just an area with just some woods around, a few open fields and stuff. There's so many stresses on the deer, nutrition being one of them. That deer that has the genetic potential to reach 170, if everything's perfect, in the wild probably going to maybe peak out at 140, 150 because of all the stresses that are in his life, nutrition being one of them. If we can close that nutrition gap, what we want to do is instead of him peaking out at 140, we want to help him get to that 145, 150 range. And by closing the nutrition gap, we can help him reach more of his genetic potential, but we're not going to take him beyond that. Yeah. You know, another interesting thing to consider that, that I always factor into um, the what I can achieve by having some type of food plot system on a property is that not only can you improve the nutrition and help a deer reach its genetic potential, but if you have some type of habitat management, even, you know, it could be food plots or, or anything to improve the habitat in your property, you like as you mentioned, you're likely going to attract more deer onto your property. More deer will spend more time there, and there will be more chances for you as a hunter to choose whether or not to shoot a deer. If you are the person making that decision to shoot a buck or not shoot a buck, more often than not, you have a better chance of those bucks making it to whatever age class you're hoping these deer might make it to to have more mature bucks. So you can be improving nutrition, but also by way of having more deer near you and you being the one to make those decisions more often, you can also improve the age class and your ability to shoot that big or older deer down the road because you have a disproportionate amount of the decision-making in that just because they're there more often. 100% correct. And, um, and that's exactly right. It's something that that's, you know, it'd be nice if we all had, you know, 5,000 acre tracks of land to hunt. Uh, we could do a whole lot of wonderful things, but the reality is, is you know, most of us, you know, we got 40 acres, 80 acres, maybe a few hundred acres. Uh, you know, there's a few that's got 500,000, a few more than that. But most people are going to have the smaller tracts of land where deer, they're going to rarely get a deer to spend 100% of its time on that piece of property that they own. What they want to do, and they can do it through, for lack of a better word, habitat manipulation, habitat improvement, which is food plots, creating some good, heavy bedding cover, 
where the you know the deer can go for security. Hopefully, they got like a sanctuary area, an area that's real thick, nasty that nobody ever goes into unless they're tracking a deer, where the deer knows they can go and get away. Every minute that he spends on your ground is a minute he's not going to be exposed to the neighbors who may shoot everything that moves. Exactly. So you're 100 percent correct. Exactly. All right, so I want to take a little shift here. And over your years working with food plots and working with Whitetail Institute, I'm sure you have been um, exposed to a lot of guys and girls who take food plotting really, really seriously and do a, a really great job at it. So what I'm curious about is what do you see those next-level people doing to produce the absolute best maximum performance out of their food plots. What's that next level stuff that your average guy or girl isn't doing, but the very best food plotters out there are? Mm, that's a good question. You know, we've touched on some of it from a maintenance standpoint, but you know, you know, the, these guys, uh, you know, that went, a lot of these guys have gone from spending, you know, as I said, a very early in the, in our conversation, uh, a few weekends a year to where they're spending hundreds of days a year on their property. Uh, and you know, they're, it, it's one of those things where they're, Kind of like every relationship, whether it be with people or whatever, the more time you spend with it, the more it improves, and the relationship with the land's improving. They're looking for, you know, new places to do food plots. They may be doing hinge cutting uh, to create more bedding cover. They may be digging ponds uh, to create more water sources for the deer. They're always looking for ways to improve their property to make it more attractive, uh, 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 and, and to give deer more reason to spend more time on their property. Um, you know, they're very detailed oriented when it comes to maintaining the food plots. Um, uh, you know, they're getting out there in the early spring. They're, um, uh, 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 controlling the weeds and grasses, whether it be, you know, through mowing and or herbicide applications. Uh, a lot of them are also incorporating mineral and vitamin supplements, which is something we haven't really talked about, but they're providing mineral and vitamin supplements for the deer as well. Um, uh, you know, creating access, that's something that, um, that uh, we haven't touched on, but I know a lot of these guys. I mean, they go they're 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 going in and you know either mowing and or raking paths to and from their stands, so they can be as quiet as possible getting to the stands and getting out of their stands. Uh, and that's that's something that's crucial, is especially for guys that you know that want to hunt the more mature bucks. Uh, if you've got a big buck that's you know that's uh, visiting a food plot and you spook him a few times. He a good chance he's going to go nocturnal on you. Uh, so the you know the ideal thing is to be able to hunt these food plots in or around them, uh, and the deer never know you were there. Obviously that's a stretch because the scent and everything else involved. But do everything you can to prevent them from knowing you're there. Controlling your scent, try not to spook them. Definitely try to stay away from the bedding areas. So when they set these food plots up, they think about how am I going to get to it? Which ways the wind blowing? You know. To, a lot of these guys, they'll, for example, they got a couple acre field. They may have several stands hung on that field. That way, they can hunt it under different winds. You know, if they got a if it's a north wind, obviously they want to be more toward the south side, vice versa. So they may hang more than one stand on a food plot. They also may have stands back in the cover off these food plots and let the wind and the time of year and what the deer are doing dictate where they're going to hunt. And in the whole time, they're thinking, you know, how can I get in here with the least possible disturbance? Yeah, so important that that right there. Whether you're using food plots or or any other hunting tactic, if you yep. can't get in or out without disturbing deer, 
every single time you go in, you are reducing your odds. And that's that's so kind of core, I think, to, to anyone trying to chase mature bucks. So that's yeah, and it, it is. And, and when it comes to food plots, a lot of times, you know, it's something that, uh, you know, if a guy's got whatever, 20 acres, 40 acres, and he got one, you know, half acre clearing, he's, he's going to be limited on his creativity. But if possible, if he can, you know, try to spend a little bit of time creating uh, maybe different accesses to that particular food plot and think about, you know, when the when the season starts, which way is the prevailing wind? Say it's going to be northwest. You know, he probably want to try to approach it as much as he can on the southeast side. Uh, so thinking, you know, how am I going to hunt this plot after I plant it is something that uh, I see a lot of the, you know, the, the people that have been doing it for a while, you know, they're uh, getting a little more creative in the way they're, and these guys are going in and, you know, creating food plots from timber or brush or what have you. And uh, when you can do that, obviously you can get as creative as you want to. Most folks don't have that. Uh, uh, when I say most folks, a lot of folks don't have that uh, that uh, that option to go in there and create, you know, from a blank canvas. They got to deal with the openings that they've got. Yeah. To take that step further, though, if you do have flexibility, um, thinking about these things before even putting in the food plot. So not necessarily putting in a food plot and then deciding, oh, what's the wind going to do? Where can I hang a stand? How can I get it? Actually think about those before you place it so that you put it in the right place so you do have the right access, so you can hunt it with the right winds, so you do know you can intercept deer coming from a nearby bedding area. I mean, if you can factor all that into your decision-making process beforehand, you are that much more well-off in the end. Um to your point, Absolutely. that's not always possible. But if it is possible, it's it's important to ask these questions. This is one of those things that, at least for me, and tell me if you disagree, but when it comes to food plotting for me, I think one of the smartest things to do, one of the most important things to do is is slow down. Take a quick second, breathe, and answer a few questions. Because I think a lot of people say, they get excited, they see someone on TV, shoot a big buck on a food plot, and they're like, I'm going to plant food plots this year. And they go by the first thing they see, and they go out and they make a little opening, they throw stuff out, and they just hope it's going to change their whole world. And that, that can still help. I mean, just trying anything can help. But I think to really get the most out of this, you have to start asking all these questions we've been talking about, figuring out what the right thing is for your goals, for your property, for your setup, thinking about how you're going to hunt it or how it factors into the area, um, thinking about access, thinking about hunting, thinking about all these different details that in the long run make a big dis- a big di- a big difference. Excuse me. It's a lot easier to do that in the front end than on the back end. Indeed, it is. If they've got the option to do that, it's certainly beneficial. And it's like anything, you know, the more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. And kind of a bad comparison I've used is, you know, I've told people before, I said, you know, I can jump in my car this afternoon and head toward the setting sun. And if I keep working that way, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hit the Pacific Ocean at some point in time. But it'd probably be better if I sat down with a map and kind of plan my route. Yeah. Uh, bad analogy, probably bad comparison, but it's 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 a crude one, but it's it's similar. Uh, so yeah, if they if they've got the ability to uh, uh, to get creative with the you know even the shapes of food plot, that's something a lot of the food plotters that have uh, been doing it for a while and they've got access to be able to create you know openings within the woods. They start thinking about shape, uh, whether it be you know kind of a boomerang type shape or uh, a long a more elongated. Uh, 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 like logging roads are a good spot, uh, fire lanes are a good spot, or creating these lanes within the in the heavier cover, hourglass shapes, uh, just oddly shaped type food plots creates more edge, which is going to create more activity. Uh, the other thing is is trying to get it as close to bedding cover 
as possible without crossing that line to where you're going to be disturbing animals. Mm -hmm. You know, the closer you can get to it, the quicker he can get to it. And a perfect example is uh, a pine forest that I hunt. When we first got it, it was one humongous thicket. I mean, it was so thick you couldn't hardly walk through it. And, you know, deer just just traipsing all over the place early in the afternoons. Uh, as those matu- those trees matured, there was less cover up underneath them. And as time went on, we noticed that the deer were getting to those food plots later and later and later because their bedding area was that much further from the food plot. Makes sense. That's definitely, definitely important to factor all that in, that placement and um, and I've seen the I've seen the exact same thing. If pot, and I think the key, one of the keys that you mentioned was without crossing that line. You want it as close as possible without spooking those deer. Going back to what you mentioned a little earlier, if we're disturbing deer, all of this work is is for naught, at least from a hunting perspective. So yeah, especially if you're hunting the more mature deer. I mean, you can get away with bumping the does and the you know in the one and two year old bucks, and maybe even a, a less intelligent three year old buck. But you can bump them around a little bit, and they continue to come. But the more mature box, uh, if you spook them a time or two, uh, you know, you're probably going to have to wait to the rut and then hope you get lucky. Yeah. So, you know, don't educate him if you can help it. Yeah. Uh, so, so we've talked about, you know, things like this, like disturbing deer on your food plots as, as a mistake people often make. We've talked about the mistake that many people make with not taking a soil test. Uh, I mentioned earlier the mistake of sometimes rushing into things without thinking your food plot plan through. These are a couple common mistakes. Is there anything else as far as very common mistakes that you see that we haven't mentioned yet um, that's worth pointing out here? Uh, you know, this is going to be... Uh, uh self-promotion a little bit but I, th- I think one of the biggest mistakes is the guy just kind of gets a little bit overwhelmed just throws his hands up and doesn't do it um i think that's a huge mistake uh you know we've gotten you know a little bit deeper into the weeds here you know getting into shaping food plots and wind direction this that and the other you know if a guy's you know not you know if he's not 100 percent sure you know he's kind of kind of thinking about it, he's teetering a little bit you know just get out there and plant something plant something um, and you're going, it's going, things are going to get better. Now, the more you do, the better it can get. But if you plant something, you've got to, you've got, you're going to see more deer and better quality deer. If you plant something that's preferred by the deer, obviously we want them to use white tail S2 products and we know those are attractive to deer. Um, so just, you know, just, just don't get overwhelmed by, as you mentioned earlier, there's so much stuff out there. There's so much information that it's, you know, almost like trying to get a sip of water out of a fire hose. You're just getting pounded. <laughs> um, you know, just don't let it. Just don't let it. Just overwhelm you to the point where you don't do it. Stick your toe in the water. Try it. Yeah. And I think they'll find out that you know they're going to they're going to see benefits, and then they can kind of grow from there. Yeah, and that's a really great point because, to your point, I mean, just in what the things I was I was just mentioning there. I mean. All those things that I'm saying you should consider, yes, those are, those are helpful things to consider. But at the same time, if you haven't started at all, that can be kind of intimidating. That can be overwhelming. So that's a great point. I mean, you need to start somewhere, just like yeah. as, just as a deer hunter, right? I mean, if if I told you your first year deer hunting ever, you had to be hunting a mature buck and you had to do all these 27 different little things right, <laughs> hardly anyone would be able to do it. Hardly anyone had fun with it. And hardly anyone would even want to start because it's so intimidating. But it's a lot, a lot better, I think, if you start at the bottom rung of that ladder, 
dip your toe in there, try things, and then just try to try to improve every year. Um, yeah, and, and and that's exactly what will happen. It's like anything, you know. The more we do it, and the longer we do it, the better we get at it. And uh, and I and I'm you know I'm from the old school. I mean, I move a little bit slow. I've always had the opinion that if you're going to run into a wall, it hurts a whole lot less if you're moving slowly as opposed to having your head down with your eyes closed. <laughs> yeah. um, so another bad comparison. But, you know, just, you know, jump in, get in there and, and do something. Try to learn as much as you can um, uh, and do as much as you can along the lines of what we're talking about. But the main thing is, is do it um, and, you know, they'll see the benefits. Yeah, and have fun, right? Because I, I really do think that, uh, like we talked about earlier, there's a lot of benefits. There's a lot of fun that can, that can come with food plots if you approach it in a way. Um, don't be too stressed out about it. If things don't go perfectly, that's all right. Enjoy the process. Enjoy, you know, those moments in the woods when you do get to see deer enjoying your food plot. And uh, I think it's it's very rewarding if you go into it that kind of mindset. Well, and I appreciate you saying that because that's something that uh, uh, that we're talking more about, and we we've, we've been uh, uh, talking more about the process and the benefits and stuff like that of food plots and deer management. And we promote both of those very heavily. You know, food plots being part, big part of the management program to grow better quality deer that we can hunt. But something that I've seen friends do, and I've talked to some other people that have done, they get so tunnel vision on killing nothing but monster bucks that they forget the process, and they let management be the number one, deer management and big bucks be the number one thing that matters to them. And they start to lose a little bit of the fun if they're not careful. And the number one thing with hunting needs to be fun. Everybody's, you know, what's fun to everybody's different. Uh, you know, what, uh, you know, I may kill something that I'm thrilled with, and you would kind of, you know, you might turn your nose up at it, or vice versa. Uh, but anytime somebody shoots a deer, you know, try to pat them on the back and encourage them. Uh, and I've heard people, you know, beat people up. I can't believe you shot that little buck. Um, you know, and then the guys, you know, he's thrilled. He's killed his first deer or his third deer or whatever it is, but he shot it and he got it in his truck. And now he's got people beating up on him. That just seems counterproductive to me. I understand people want to let deer grow up, but let people grow into it themselves. Uh, and you know, and if you want nothing but big bucks shot on your property, make sure you get like-minded people together. But I think you're doing a disservice if there's kids available or people, new hunters available that you can take. And if they shoot a doe or a young buck, you know, the world's not going to end. Yeah, very true. Very true. I think this is a, I think this is a great place for us to wrap things up uh, because that's a great final thought to end on. So, so Steve, if people, if there's anyone out there who wants to learn more about what you guys are doing uh, or utilize some of your resources or try one of your products, um, where can they go and what should they do to get, to get connected with you guys? Uh, two places they can get the information from us. One is our website, whitetailinstitute.com. Uh, it's got a wealth of information on there, uh, uh, everything from the beginning basics to the uh, uh, to the you know most expert guy that's been doing it for decades and decades. There's information there that will benefit them. Also, something we hadn't talked about is our 800 number. It's 800-688-3030. We've got consultants available. We're open eight to five Monday through Friday. It's eight to five Central Time Monday through Friday. We've got guys here that that's what that's all we do. We answer the phone and answer questions to help people, you know, decide what to plant or how to, you know, maintain them. Uh, just answering specific questions and giving them information that can help them be more successful. We've got hundreds of years of combined experience doing this. Uh, 
So they can use that 800 number. You know, if they want to buy something, hey, that's great. We love that, obviously. But if they just got a question, uh, you know, pick up the phone and use that 800 number uh, and ask whatever question they want. You know, I've always, you know, we've all heard this, that the only dumb question is one that's not asked. So don't be afraid to ask, you know, anything that's on your mind, to get, whether you're, again, just thinking about getting started or if you've been doing it for two or three decades. Um, uh, call us. I think we can help you, no doubt. Something that I wanted to mention to you, too, was uh, that we're going to offer to, you know, to your listeners. Uh, it's not even on our website yet. that They have to call the 800 number to get this. We've got a DVD that's about 45, 50 minutes long that covers everything from start to finish on food plots uh, to help people get started. Um, if they'll call that 800 number, what we'll do, we're going to ship it to them. It's five bucks. And it's some of the most best information that they can get, whether, again, whether they're thinking about getting started, they're beginning, or if they've been doing it forever. There's information there that can benefit them. Uh covers a lot of the basics and goes a little bit more into detail as well. So, uh, But if they'll call our 800 number, 800-688-3030, and just tell them that uh, – you know, got the number from Wired to Hunt. Want to take advantage of that uh, DVD for five bucks? We'll that covers the shipping and handling. We'll send it to them. Give them a lot of information. They can sit down with their favorite beverage and some popcorn or whatever, <laughs> and uh, spend a little less than an hour. They're going to learn. A little, they're going to learn something. That's terrific. Well, I think that's uh, that's a great opportunity, and I appreciate you, Steve, uh, offering that up to everyone tuning in today. And uh, gosh, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with us to to kind of take our food plot understanding to the next level and uh, tell you what, you've got me excited to get out there and start working the dirt. Well, Mark, we sincerely appreciate the opportunity of being on and uh, look forward to the next time. Looking forward to the next time I see you at a show and get to visit again as well. Sounds great, Steve. Have a great afternoon and good luck this hunting season. Thanks, Mark. Same to you. And that's going to be it for us today, but a few quick things. First, this is hot off the press. The week of June 26th, that's... Not next week, but the week after that, if you're listening to this when it first came out. June 26th, I'm going to be doing an Instagram takeover for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, which means, in short, I'm going to be posting photos on their account for the week, along with some cool stories and some thoughts on my part related to the outdoors and conservation. And I'm doing this because the TRCP is doing some great work to support our wildlife and our wild places, and I've just been really impressed with what they're doing and their mission. So with that said... Be sure to follow the TRCP over on Insta so you can see what kind of cool stuff I might be posting during that week. That's the week of June 26th. Now, next, of course, we want to thank our partners who have supported this podcast. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And a shout out to you guys, too, for letting our partners know how much you appreciate them supporting the podcast. One of you recently posted on Sick of Gear's Facebook page, giving Wired to Hunt a nice big shout-out, and that was super cool and so greatly appreciated. So, you know who you are. Big thanks. And finally, thank you to all of you for listening. I appreciate every single one of you out there. I hope you found some some stuff in this podcast episode to, to get you pumped to get out there and doing some food plots and to be working in the dirt. And until next time, I hope you'll stay Wired to Hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. 
you can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 